Faith Factor Impact, episode number 13. Hey everybody, welcome to Faith Factor Impact, where we hang out with today's top nonprofit thought leaders to get refueled, reconnected, and inspiration. So let's go. I believe that it's my calling. I believe that this is my job to do while I'm on earth, and it gives me a sense of purpose, and it drives everything that I do. Hello, Impact listeners, Jay Everline here, and it is great to be alive. I am pumped to present to you today our featured guest, Dr. Ellen Jefferson. Ellen, welcome to the show. Hi, Jay. Thanks so much. I'm happy to be here. Dr. Ellen Jefferson is the executive director of Austin Pets Alive, a nonprofit organization that is dedicated to developing innovative and comprehensive programs for animals typically euthanized in a shelter setting. Ellen is a licensed veteran by training, committed to saving all animals and helping pet owners find resources. Featured on popular media outlets such as the Huffington Post, Ellen and APA have successfully made Austin the largest no-kill city in the nation. Ellen is a top-notch thought leader who's doing work that matters and making an impact. So, Ellen, we always start the show off with a reflection. It's a moment to quiet the noise around us and get centered. I know you've got a great one for us, so take it away. So I have a little piece of paper that came out of a fortune cookie, and I, I taped it to my screen monitor so that I could look at it every day. And um, it says, failure is not defeat until you stop trying. And I really like that because, um, to me, failure is a choice. Um, there's that you, you control your circumstances. You control when you give up or when you move on. And if you choose to give up at the lowest point um, in what you're doing or at a, any low point in what you're doing, then that's where your story ends. And that could, if you do it at a low point, then that could be failure. If you wait and you keep chugging along until you make it to a successful point and hopefully a point that is sustainable, for both you and the organization, then you can exit and be and leave on a high note. And I think that that is really important for the work that we're doing because we face so many obstacles every day, and some of them are pretty demoralizing, but um, we just keep going. Boom. I love that. Failure is not defeat until you stop. Hear it clearly. Words of the wise. So, Ellen, we're hanging out at the local coffee shop in Austin, Texas, fighting back all of that South by South west uh, traffic and you've got an amazing story and so i want to learn more about you personally how did you come to start doing what you're doing today share your story with us we want to learn more about you sure um so i am a military brat i grew up moving every two years of my life my dad was in the air force and um i didn't grow up with a lot of dogs and cats i had one dog that died when i was 11 or 12 years old and my other pets were just pocket pets, uh, hamsters, gerbils, hermit crabs, birds, everything that I could get that um, my parents weren't allergic to. But um, I, I knew that I wanted to be a veterinarian as soon as I figured out what a veterinarian did because I wanted to help animals and I wanted to save lives. I wasn't necessarily interested in the medical piece or the biology. It was more about the concept of being able to use my hands and brain to help animals be better. And so I spent most of my childhood and college years focused on getting into vet school, doing all the appropriate classwork, 
and preparing myself to be accepted to vet school. I graduated from veterinary school in 1997 in Virginia and um, took a job at a a very rural private practice. It was in Rocky Mount, Virginia, which is moonshine capital of the world, which um, kind of explains the the uh, economics of that area and um, the the type of of clientele and the animals that I was working on. They didn't have any resources, and so what I was what I learned that year was really important to my future career because I learned how to do a lot with very little and still focus on life-saving and helping the animal instead of euthanizing it or or killing it because the, the people didn't have the funds to treat it. So that was good. When I moved to Austin in 1998, I worked at an emergency hospital, and I had a lot of free time on my hands, so I started volunteering at the local shelter, and I really did not understand the magnitude of the problem that was occurring at shelters all over the country. In fact, in veterinary school, we didn't talk about it at all. So I had no idea that 85% of the animals that were coming into the Austin city shelter were being killed. And um, so when I started volunteering, I thought I was going to go in and help and offer my veterinary help. And um, what ended up happening was that since they were killing so many, there really wasn't a need for my help. Um, The animals that were surviving were healthy. There weren't any sick or injured animals that needed needed medical care because those were all euthanized for space. So I started focusing my effort on the community. I thought, well, if the animals can't be saved at the city shelter, then there must be something I can do. So maybe I can focus on spay-neuter, trying to prevent the animals from being born so that fewer So the shelter would have to kill fewer if fewer of them came into the shelter in the first place. And so I started Emancipet's Bay and Neuter Clinic, which is a low-cost and free mobile spay-neuter clinic. And we um, started spaying and neutering everything that we could, working in partnership with the city of Austin. And by 2007, there was a little bit of of bubble uh, around the country about no kill, and so it had it got me thinking again about their the reason I started Emancipet, which was to save lives at the shelter. And when I looked after nine years of spay neuter, when I looked back at what was happening at the shelter, the shelter was still killing about fifty percent of the animals that were coming in. So there was a an improvement, but not not a lot, and um, not the kind of improvement I was expecting to see after almost a decade of work. So my um, next step was to focus on what we could do to help the the shelter help more animals from the inside rather than from the outside. And um, the first foray was offering volunteer help to the shelter again. The um, unfortunately they were they were busy, they were understaffed, they really didn't have the ability to take advantage of that. So I approached Austin Pets Alive, which up until that point had been an advocacy organization. They were focused on lobbying city council to get more funds to the city shelter, um, start a volunteer program at the city shelter, do, do things that are pretty basic now, but at the time were not in existence. And so by 2007, that organization was kind of dormant. And the and when I approached them with the idea of becoming a rescue organization where we actually take animals out of the shelter, they, they were enthusiastic about that. So I became the pro bono executive director and um, I started rallying people that I knew and reaching out to folks that I knew had a strong interest in this. All of us had full-time jobs and we're doing other things to make, make our ends meet. But um, we 
we pulled together a group of, of about 10 or 20 people that uh, all took leadership positions and we had no funds, we had no staff, we had no, no building. And so the idea was, well, how do we solve this problem? How do we save the lives? If, if the problem is animals are dying, then how do we prevent them from dying and get them out of the shelter alive? If we can't control them coming in, they're there. The city has to make a choice to euthanize them or, or give them to us. If we get them, what do we do with them? And so we started building up a, a, a program that would try to address the massive number of animals that were coming into the shelter. And um, it was critical that we focused on making a measurable difference. We wanted to raise the save rate, which is a number. So we knew that numerically everything we did needed to tie into raising that save rate. And And unfortunately, the only way that you can do that is to, you know, we can't resurrect animals that have already been killed. So we have to, we, we decided we would intervene at the moment that they're being euthanized so that we know for sure that the animal that we're taking is not a duplication of any effort that's already occurring in the community. So we started working and we got the euthanasia list from the city. The city would prepare that. Every, every city does this, so I'm not picking on the city of Austin. Every, every shelter that euthanizes does this, that they have to choose animals to die so that Cages can be empty in the mornings when more animals come in. So every night, uh, this, the shelter closed at 7. Every night around 5, they would prepare a list. We would go get that list. We would walk the list and find the animals that we thought we could pull. We would make phone calls. We would post on Craigslist. We had Facebook. And we were we were drumming up foster homes to come and take these animals and give them two weeks. That was, our, that was what we were hoping for is two weeks until they can get adopted. And if you can just give up your bathroom or your guest room and save a life, please do. So we started getting fosters signing up, and we were able to start pulling animals off that list. We knew if we were if there were 100 animals on that list, we knew if we could get 10 off in one day, then that was a 10% increase in the save rate and or decrease in the death rate, I should say. So And that would be an incremental increase in the save rate. So we just kept plugging away. And now that Austin is a no-kill city, we have the luxury of being able to provide help to the to the cities around Austin. So that's kind of what we do in a, in a nutshell. Um, the city of Austin hired amazing shelter director, Tawny Hammond, um, within the last year. And now the city of Austin is doing a fantastic job saving lives. They, they reached a 97% save rate for the city of Austin in um, I think that was January. So we're just so thrilled to be working with an, with people that are equally inspired to save lives. And um, there's just no stopping us. Austin has really turned the corner. It's it is this is this is here to stay. No stopping you now. I love that. You know, Elena, I'm really enjoying the development of this story. Your story. When I think about you know, kind of you being an animal lover, if you will, at, at a very early age. Uh, taking that passion and pursuing it uh, by going to medical school and then coming out and in, into the field and and seeing all of these opportunities to really get involved. I mean, you started one organization and then you sound it sounds like you handed the baton to someone else. And so, I mean, what's culminating for me there, and it kind of t- dovetails into uh, the the reflection that you shared, is that you just continued to progress, and as you progressed, you learned more. You stepped into a, a new thing as a as a part of your journey, and now here you are today. Um, you and your organization recognize nationally 
because of a passion that you followed at a very early age and, and wouldn't let go of that. And it's coming out in, in how you shared that story. And so th- that's just perfect. And it leads us right into our ultimate faith factor question. We believe here is is that there is a faith factor, a, a why, the thing that you believe is bigger than yourself that keeps you going, uh, as you mentioned earlier, in spite of the odds. And so what's the why for you? Why do you keep doing this work um, in spite of those setbacks? Um, it's it's a great question, and I, and I don't necessarily have a great answer. I I believe that it's my calling. Um, I believe that this is my job to do while I'm on Earth, and it gives me a sense of purpose. And um, it is it does it drives everything that I do. So it, it is it's incredibly personal and, and important to me and to to everything that I do. So I, I don't have a, a good why. It's just there and. Um, and I'm listening. I'm doing it. Yeah, I think that's a great why. I think it's a great why. You know, again, it goes back to your story. It's just everything about where you are today has so much to do with what you just said, listening to your inner voice, following your passion, like being keen on like what you believe you were destined to put here for. I mean, you were put here to save all of the animals that you could possibly save. And I have no doubt in my mind uh, that uh, not only is a 97% uh, survival, if that's the right terminology to use here in Austin, but that's going to continue to have impact across uh, the nation and other cities. And it already is. And so congratulations on that. And that is your faith factor. And I'm, I'm glad that you're following it um, so that, so that we can be inspired by that. And so I want to, I want to dive in here a, a little bit further because, you know, you've, you've had some, some setbacks, but you've also had a lot of success. I mean, you're nationally recognized at this point. And so, so often when we run across individuals like you and we see you at the mountaintop, we, we have this misnomer that everything has always worked out. And so we like to dig in and ask you, what's been your valley moment? That moment that, that one moment that was probably the most difficult valley moment, difficult challenge in your entire journey. Why don't you share that moment with us and, and make it real for us? Okay. Well, there's been plenty. Um, we're, you know, everything that we're doing is, is, new and we have not had a roadmap. So there has been a lot of things that failed and sometimes spectacularly. Uh, I think one that was maybe one of the worst was in 2012, we were at the peak of um, kittens being coming in. We had an intake higher than any year preceding that. 2011 was the first year we saved all the kittens and I believe that 1,100 came in. And then the following year, um, something like 1,800 came in. And during that year, there was an outbreak of panleukopenia, which is a parvo-like virus for kittens. And because we house them in a nursery, they're, they're in close proximity. And so a lot of them got sick. We lost a huge number of kittens despite trying to treat them and triage it. And, um, and you know, volunteers were extremely upset. Staffs upset. We 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 lost a lot of our foster homes. It was just a very traumatic year for kitten saving because the whole purpose is of us saving them and bringing them to the nurseries to save their lives. Um, but what was happening is some were dying because of our nursery. So that was a a, a real eye opener. 
we got through the season and we made a conscious effort to keep pulling kittens because they say they faced 100% death if we did not pull them. And with and even in our challenged program, they had a 70% chance of surviving. So we felt like that was better than 0%. And um, so we went ahead and finished the season out. And then after the season ended, we we regrouped and we changed everything that we did. We um, we started a, a protocol that we call all in and all out, where we divided the nursery into rooms and we would keep one room worth of intake in one room. And then another, I mean, another week, one week of intake in one room and then another week in the next and the next week in the next. So each room was segregated by intake period and volunteers would only be able to go into that one room and feed and clean, and we had all of the supplies they needed for refrigerator, microwave, everything they needed for their their care in each room. And by doing that, we were able to isolate. If disease broke out, then we were able to isolate into one room all of that and um, and not spread it to everybody else. And we also created a pan loop ward that was very similar to our parvo ward for puppies. It's actually the exact same ward where we would send the kittens if they got sick and tested positive for panleukopenia. So we fixed it. We solved the problem. And we wouldn't have if we had gave up and decided this was too much work. It's too heartbreaking. It, you know, we don't want to save kittens just so they can suffer. Um, but we we worked through it. And now we have a 91% survival rate for kittens, even coming to us at one day old. And that is that's unprecedented across the country. And so I know that we're doing the right thing. I know that it was the right thing to keep going and to work through the problem. But at the time, it felt like, what are we doing? We need to just give up. Wow. Wow. Well, Ellen, I I don't want to kind of uh, get into anything here that, that you're not very comfortable with. But as I understand it, there was there was some kind of some legal issues that 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 happened along your journey there. And do you mind kind of give us a peek into into what happened and 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 how did you make it through that? Sure. Um, it's not unrelated to uh, the, that kitten year. 2012 was a very hard year and we had started a San Antonio Pets Alive and San Antonio was once the worst city in the country for life saving and for animals. And they killed um, almost 50,000 animals a year mm. in San Antonio. And so they had they were trying to become no kill and they were failing at it. They were at a 30 percent save rate in 2011. So they approached Austin and wanted to know what happened. Why did we have so much success in Austin? And they asked Austin Pets Alive to create a San Antonio Pets Alive, which we did. And um, it was also a very difficult year because at the time we didn't know the cost. We were still learning in Austin and we were still growing. And so we didn't know how to project accurately what the cost of a new program that mirrored Austin would be, especially when you don't have that slower um, ramp up like we did in Austin. So we created San Antonio Pets Alive on the fly. We started saving lives. Um, we had, we didn't, we couldn't find a vet to come on full time, even though we were advertising, there was just a lot of problems. And, um, so the legal issue was me trying to help a foster home over the telephone because I was in Austin and they were in San Antonio and we could not afford to send them to an emergency hospital, which is what they wanted to do. We could not afford it. Um, we were trying to talk through the issue on the phone. The dog ended up passing away. And, of course, the foster home was very upset. And they um, they filed a complaint with the veterinary board. And 
Um, and so we've been involved in a legal issue about about the who owns the animals if they're in a shelter. Um, it's not necessarily about the care of that dog. Obviously, we would have preferred to be able to provide better care for that dog. But the legal issue was about whether or not shelters own their own animals and whether or not they have the discretion to treat them. However, you know, if they don't have money, then do they treat them like an owner does that doesn't have money? Mm -hmm. Or do they have to send animals to emergency hospitals um, and pay for it? That, you know, that's the big question. We won the lawsuit. Shelters own their own animals. And and that's a good thing because shelters do need to be able to control their spending um there's you, you can't spend a thousand dollars an animal and save everybody you just can't yeah and so you've you've got to try to do the best you can for every single one and certainly 2012 was a low point we in both cities we were doing much better care for the animals than we were back then not and and it wasn't even that bad of care back then it was just um overload mm-hmm you know, I, I, Ellen, I, here you are doing all of this great work. You're, you're trying to extend that to San Antonio and you're kind of hit with this situation. I mean, that, that had to be to some degree personally devastating. Um, what, what kind of feelings were, were, were you, were you having at that time? Um, talk to us about that. How did you, how did you make it through it? I mean, you know, it's kind of a, a t- and, you know, a little bit of a slap in the face. Here you are trying to do a good thing and kind of backfires. What, talk to us about um, that. Well, I mean, yeah, it didn't feel good. It was a, you know, like I said, you're you're trying so hard to save lives and you're doing everything you can think of to do it. Um, but you can't predict every scenario. You, 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 you know, until this becomes, until no kill and the Pets Alive model becomes an institution of its own, it, there, we don't have all the answers. We're, we have to figure it out on. And so it, um, you know, there's a point where you start wondering, are you doing the right thing? And and for me, it's all about the data. Mm-hmm. If the animals, if if we can look at the data and see that we're we are creating more good in the world than there was harm already, then we're doing the right thing. We're headed in the right direction. Our job is to continue to improve and make quality improvements and save lives better day after day after day. But we got to start somewhere. And if you don't start somewhere, if you give up and you don't do it, then they're stuck at 30% save rate. And that's not fair to the 70% that were perfectly healthy, had no problems, that died because nobody tried. Mm, Wow. Wonderful, wonderful story. So, um, Ellen, we on the show um, really try to share and talk a lot about leadership. We've got listeners here that um, are really looking for some nuggets. And so let's talk about impact leadership. You've got an awesome story. And so tell me, whenever I talk to leaders like you, there's always this defining moment along your leadership journey that really influenced your direction. And what was that moment for you? And, and talk to us a little bit about it. What's influenced your leadership? Um, wow. You know, people have asked that and I don't, I don't know that there's a specific point. There's so many things that have influenced what, what I do and how I feel and, and the way I think. Um, I, I, one of, one thing was going and listening to Nathan Winograd, who is a, um, kind of called the father of no kill. Um, he is, he was instrumental in San Francisco when San Francisco was the no-kill leader in the country back in the nineties. And, um, his, you know, his whole pitch is just save them, just figure out a way to save them and do it. 
and he doesn't give you the tools to do it, which is frustrating, but he, the, the idea of just doing it. Mm-hmm. And I like that. And that really resonated with me when I was the, um, medical director of Emancipet. I, I really thought that no kill was unachievable. I thought that, um, there weren't enough homes for all these animals. So, you know, why bother trying? And, um, he, I left that seminar with it him saying, okay, maybe he's onto something. Maybe, mm-hmm. maybe, maybe there are enough films. Maybe we're not trying hard enough. Maybe the problem is us, not the community. Yeah. So, so, so that was important. Yeah. I, I, that's, I, I like that. And, and I, I, I'm with you on that point about, you know, there's kind of a, a lot of different things that have went, went influence your leadership. And so I take that for, for what it is. And so let me ask you this though. Um, a lot of times we talk about the things that leaders should do, and I like to pause and take a different perspective. If if you had to say, what are the don'ts of leadership? What are what are the things that you'd advise leaders not to do? Well, I think that the um, the the biggest thing, the thing that I have seen take down leaders in this field anyway, is the focus on trying to please everybody, mm. and you can't do it. It's and honestly, Facebook is such a wonderful tool for getting animals into homes and spreading the message about what's happening in shelters and why people need to act and step up and foster and volunteer and adopt and donate. But it is also a place where there's a lot of negativity. There's a lot of, um, you know, just people stewing about things and they're maybe they're right. Maybe they're wrong. It doesn't really matter. But if you get yourself pulled into that, you can spend all day, every day, just on Facebook and trying to respond to everybody's concern. And um, I've seen at least three people be taken down by that because they can't get anything else done. And if you can't get anything else done, you can't be successful because it, it, everything else outside of Facebook is the actual work you need to be doing. Oh, man, so powerful. So powerful. I call them trolls, Ellen. Um, folks that are not really contributing, they just want to be spectators. And so, great nugget, great nugget. Don't f- focus on the trolls. Focus on what it exactly is you are trying to achieve. It's not that you ignore what people right. are saying. It's just that you can't be consumed with that. If you, if you get too consumed with it, as Ellen has nicely stated, you won't get anything else done. And so the work that, that you're really put here to do, uh, we'll go for not. And so good stuff. Good stuff. So, Ellen, I, I want to keep keep going along this trail here. We we believe that every individual has what we call a genius level talent. It's the thing that you are better at than anybody else or most people, at least. Talk to us about what your genius talent is. And and don't be modest, because I've, I've already heard a little bit of, a, of it anyway. Um. You know, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that my probably focus, um, I can focus and, and I don't hear the rest of the noise. Um, the, the, that is, you know, I've been told that's my gift mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, I guess it is. I, it's, there's just so much going on, but if you, if you lose sight of the finish line, you can get really distracted. And so, cause there's just so, I mean, it is a animal welfare is a huge, huge, huge topic. And there are a million things you can do for the betterment of animals. But if your goal is to save the lives that are being killed in shelters, then that's the only thing you need to be focused on is what's happening in the shelter and how do you remove those animals 
in as big a numbers as possible from that euthanasia list. And then whatever problems become of that, then you start solving for those so that you can keep the flow going. But if you start getting involved in spay-neuter or education or, um, you know, anything else that is related but not on that one trajectory, then you can, um, you get to, you, your, your energy gets sucked away from, from the goal. Yeah, a friend of mine says, stay focused, follow the course, and don't waver. Don't waver. And so that's an awesome gift gift to have because there are a lot of distractions. There are a lot of shiny objects, a lot of different needs. And so, man, the gift of zoning in is so, so timely, particularly today with all of the different media outlets. And as you noted, you can get distracted by those. And so that's an awesome gift. That's an awesome gift. So I want to I want to segue here um, just slightly as we start to wrap things up here. And I want to talk about community work and strategic partnership. And I want to specifically talk about some strategic partnerships that you have developed. Uh, I believe fairly recently here, you did a partnership with HostGator. Um, talk to us about how you think about strategic partnerships in terms of accomplishing the things that you're set, set out to do. Well, I, you know, the biggest thing is we can't do it alone. There's no single person on earth that can save all the animals. And so it is incredibly important to develop alliances. Um, and, and hearkening back to the focus issue, you, you can't spend time arguing with people who don't believe in the missions. So we don't, we don't spend one ounce of energy talking to people that are not interested or don't believe that it's possible. We only talk to people that do. And that is, that's these companies that want to be part of the brand and want to help save lives. And, um, and it's a partnership where we help them with marketing and they help us by getting adopters and, and giving funds for adoptions. We, we work with volunteers that, um, that, that believe and want to take leadership positions. We have a very volunteer centric organization. I think that's actually where most of our strategic partnerships are is that we're leveraging the individuals that come into the organization and want to help. And um, that's how we create a huge army of people that can get this massive amount of work done. Love that. Love that. So Ellen, is there a particular uh, technology that you've used or software that you've used to uh, kind of help you accomplish the goals that you set out. You talk a lot about data. You sound like you're, you're really into into data. Is there something you've used that you found to be very helpful? Um, no, we're, we're actually working with a company to um, develop a software that can be used for this no-kill um, database that will be much more comprehensive and have run reports that are much more useful to us. Right now, we use uh, a lot of Excel, Microsoft products. We use Google Docs to store most of our protocols and procedures and um, Gmail. And so we, it's, you know, kind of the basic. Our, our big thing was use free products because we didn't want to spend anything on non-animal things. So um, we use a lot of free social media. We use um, free when we're trying to get media press we, we send press releases out. We don't, we don't generally pay for ads in papers or, or anywhere else. And um, so we're not, there's a lot of people in our group that are tech savvy. I'm not one of them, but um, we've certainly uh, used whatever we could find for free and leverage it the best we could. I love that. I love it. Free is good. Free is good. Mm -hmm. So, so Ellen, I, before we close out, I've just got a few lingering questions here that I think you can provide some insight on. Name t two of the top skills you believe is needed to be a successful nonprofit leader uh, that you think are critically important. Uh, 
Um, I th- that's a hard question. There, there, probably one of the big ones is being able to clearly hear what the problem is. Um, when people come to you with a complaint and generally it's not, they don't hone in for you on the actual problem. Typically you'll get a lot of information and possibly 10 problems all wrapped up into one, but, but trying to really listen to hear what the actual problem is, what the legitimate problem is, and then solve it. And, you know, you run the risk of just responded, responding defensively to that at, so you don't hear any of the problems or you go down rabbit holes chasing all these problems that aren't really problems. They're peripheral problems to the main problem. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that skill of trying to, to really listen and hear what people people are communicating to you is important. Um, and then I, I th- the other one's not really a skill. It's sort of a personality trait of calmness. I think that that has served me well, that um, I don't get riled up about a lot of things. And that helps me keep my energy from spinning out of control. And I think it also helps the team stay focused and not, not feel like things are out of control, even when maybe things even are out of control. Um, there's, there's, I think, a benefit to, to just trying to stay the course and being very steady. Share one book you've read that has a lasting impact on the way you approach your work. Um, you know, there is a, a book that I read in high school, um, the James Harriet series of books, which, you know, he was a veterinarian. And funnily enough, in veterinary school, it, that is not he is not somebody that that veterinarians typically look up to because it's so, so old school and he wasn't paid well for his efforts. He's. Um, you know, he's out in the middle of England trying to, to work on animals with no pay, no, no facility. Um, and, and it really inspires me because it shows that this profession is so, so well-rounded. We have, we, we can do it all. We can, we can be out in the middle of nowhere and save lives. We don't have to have fancy x-ray equipment and all the the new gadgets to be able to save lives. We can do it with just our brains in our hands. And, um, and I just love that. I think it's something that we've forgotten as a profession, but it's there and it's pretty cool. Great. Ellen, if you could talk to your younger self, what's one piece of advice that you would share with little Ellen? I think it would be to be more confident in what you believe. Um, I, I was easily swayed by my peers, and um, I think that there is just, it, you know, being true to your true self is is so great. And I see that in in what kids are learning today. I see so many kids with confidence that I never had, and I would say that that is that is the thing I would say to myself: just look inward, don't look outward. And what is one action our listeners can take in, say, the next two weeks to, in their pursuit to impact their community? Well, the, one action is to find something that they care about and, um, and look for the, the problem, the real problem that exists, why, why something is occurring that they feel is a problem, and, and just maybe make a list of the ways that you can impact that that you as an individual, not by changing the system or by making other people do it, but what you can do to actually start making a difference on that problem. Um, So I guess that's sort of two things. Make a list and start. And where can we go to find out more about you and your organization? 
austinpetsalive.org is the best place. And we're also on Facebook at Austin Pets Alive. So, folks, my mentor Dave Ramsey says the difference between the you now and the you later is the people you meet and the books you read. And you've been listening to Dr. Ellen Jefferson and Jay Everline. Ellen, thank you for joining us today and for making a difference in your community. Thank you so much for having me. Head over to faithfactorimpact.com and simply type in the search bar Ellen Jefferson to access the show notes page and all the resources mentioned on the show. Until next time, let's go make an impact.